Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by C. Trent Rosecrans. Trent covers the Reds for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at C. Trent. Trent, welcome back to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about the Reds for a little bit. We'll talk about your Hall of Fame ballot later in the show. But I want to talk about the Reds because they've done some interesting things this offseason. But I look at them globally over the last five years. That's how long it's been since they've made the playoffs. And I wonder if this is a rebuild gone wrong. They are still far away from making the playoffs, in my opinion, despite the moves that they've made. We've seen the Cubs and the Astros rebuild very quickly. What's gone wrong with the Reds over the last five years? I think this is a rebuild that's still in progress that has not gone well. I think a lot of that has to do with kind of a switch in general manager position. You know, um, Dick Williams took over uh, after during this rebuild and did not have his hands on it. So I think there would have been something different done differently if uh, he were in charge the whole time. Um, you know, the biggest thing is, quite honestly, is probably their best trade chip and that's where i think so many of these go right you have to go right if you have to capitalize on those trade chips they they got nothing for um now nobody's left from the Aroldis chapman in the organization other than well caleb cotham who retired as a pitcher and is now the assistant pitching coach but other than that they they got nothing out of that and that was a um that was poorly done and that that was on the uh, walt jockety regime and um, that's that's one of theirs, but you know they also under that time um, got Eugenio Suarez for Alfredo Simon, Anthony Discafani for Matt Latos. You know these things all kind of happen, and, and and every team, and and I will put them in this um, the the people who have not had the successful rebuilds. We've seen the very successful ones, and those have been celebrated. But you also have Everybody trying that. I mean, probably, what, at least half over the, the last 10 years have, have tried this um, philosophy. I, I would say it might even be more if I went down the list uh, to, to raise um, things and then kind of come up from the dead, the, the Phoenix-type uh, uh, try of, of rebuilding. And it, the Astros and Cubs have been very successful uh, and, you know, others have also had their issues. And um, it's a little known fact for many that only one team wins a championship every year. What's interesting is that the Cubs did this early and the Astros did the rebuilding early. And I think that was hugely advantageous to them because you're right, when you do have seven or 10 teams trying this a year, inevitably some of those rebuilds are going to fail. It's just the math doesn't add up. So the Cubs and the Astros both had the advantage of being early tankers, I guess you could say. And the Reds didn't have that. And the Padres are in a similar situation as the Reds. They have a loaded farm system, but they haven't been good in a long time either. And we're going to see this with a lot of teams who are rebuilding and going through the bad attendance and the bad ratings on television and the bad team on the field, and it's not going to yield anything. And that's going to be tough for a lot of people to swallow. Yeah, we were in Houston when they had a 0.0. Uh, rating for a Reds Astros game, uh, interleague. I think that was in 13. Yeah, it was in 13 um, when Shin Su Chu was with the team. That was the last Reds playoff team. Um, and the Astros had a 0.0 rating when we were there for the first time. And uh, they have recovered. Yes, they have. The uh, Reds, they did make an interesting trade with the Dodgers. They got 
Alex Wood, Yasiel Puig, and Matt Kemp. They got some money, and they basically gave up nothing. So they got a couple of productive players, and Matt Kemp, who shouldn't be playing in the field anymore, but they got two productive players without giving up much. Did this deal sort of just fall into their lap? How did this all come together for them? Oh, no, this is something they've been working on. You know, the 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 Dodgers really wanted to avoid the luxury tax. And this is what it all came around to, was getting that luxury tax. The Reds uh, were probably looking at either eating Homer Bailey's contract or giving him a shot in spring training and then eating it or hoping for a miracle. And so this was all about the Dodgers wanting to get around that luxury tax so that they had some more flexibility. And we've seen them do this before. And the Reds were a pretty good pick because you had someone like Homer Bailey who was owed a lot um, that they were going to to get rid of. And they gave up two prospects that I I think are very possibly two future big leaguers. So I wouldn't say they gave the Reds gave up nothing. I I like, I think Jeter Downs is um, the biggest question with Jeter Downs is, can he stick at shortstop? Uh, Most people I've talked to says he will not, but I don't think anybody doubts that he can hit at the big league level eventually. And then Josiah Gray was a really, really nice um, pickup for them last year in the draft, uh, kind of a, a converted infielder to a pitcher um, who who's done really well. So, I mean, they gave up two decent prospects. However, both of those guys were um, compensatory, uh, used with compens- or drafted with compensatory picks. And it's very possible that they could replenish that with Yasiel Puig and Alex Wood and getting picks for those guys if they don't trade them before the end of the season and if they offer them uh, qualifying offers after this year. So they, they could actually just come out, like you said, without giving up anything and getting somebody who may not be as good a prospect or maybe a little bit better. We don't know. But there is a chance that, that they could just get the same kind of uh, return is what they gave up. Earlier in the offseason, they acquired Tanner Roark from the Nationals. That's another good add, a good solid player. Not a high ceiling, but not really a low floor either. Just a two or three win player that can really help them. I don't think people realize just how bad the Reds pitching staff has been over the last couple years. It was historically bad a couple of years ago, but now getting Wood and, and Roark, I believe those guys will be right at the top of the rotation. Yeah, they will be, and uh, they're guys that you, injury uh, notwithstanding, uh, knock on wood for everybody, because you don't like to see anybody get hurt, uh, but, you know, injury withstanding, they should be in their rotation and decent, decent pitching um, uh, to go along with, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in Luis Castillo, I, I'm also a pretty big believer in Tyler Malley, and then if Anthony DiSclefani is is healthy, you know, you have five that, that you can go there that are pretty good. I mean, you don't have – the only one who has probably that ace potential is, is Castillo, but he's still not – he's still young and, and not quite there yet. Um, but you have a solid base there, and you hope that you can develop. Now, this is a team that has said that they still want another starter, and it's something that they could, they could still try to do, be it – I know they've checked in with Keuchel – and um, they've also been in on that Bauer slash um, Kluber. Kluber, thank you. 
uh, yeah, how can I forget Cy Young winners? It's the American League. They're not. It's all different. Um, you know, they could they could be in on that sweepstakes. I, I don't know that they are willing to pay that price, which would likely be like Senzel and Trammell and more, and that's uh, that's quite a bit. I would do that deal if I were Cincinnati, if they really believe they have a chance. I think the production they would get over Kluber over the next three years would still be, I don't know, 15 war? Are they 15 war is a lot. Are they going to get that out of Senzel and Trammell? I don't know. You know, it's tough to say. Over six years for both, there's a shot. I mean, and that 15 war player over six years is still a pretty good player. And and that is uh, saying quite a bit, but I, I'm a big, big believer in Taylor Trammell. So, uh, but of course, I always... I'm one of those, you know, there, I think everybody who watches um, prospects closely probably overvalues them a little bit. And I, I'm one of those who probably overvalues prospects more than I should. I used to cling to prospects. I, I'm a Boston fan. I grew up in Boston. And I remember when they traded for Pedro and everyone, the attitude at the time, Pedro had just won the Cy Young in Montreal, was how could you give up Rose and Pavano? Those guys were so highly rated, and then they got Pedro, and he basically became the best pitcher ever, and I was like, hey, you know, prospects, they could go. Pedro was maybe the best pitcher ever before he went to Boston. Just many people didn't realize it. Oh my god, I love the Expos, so. Me too. I always love the Larry Walker and the Pedro and the Ken Hill, that whole team, I like them too. Dick Williams has said he's not done. He, he's not done with these trades. He, you mentioned they're still linked to Keuchel. Uh, we've heard them attached to Pollock. Do you see any other significant signings or deals coming this way? I think they want to, but there's a difference between saying you want to do it and to be able to do it, especially with free agents. Um, now, um, if you're Dallas Keuchel, you'll probably have to get overpaid to come to Cincinnati and pitch in Great American Ballpark. If you're... AJ Pollock, and it gets a little bit late, and you're going to take a short-term deal. It might be a nice place to to reestablish your short-term value with because uh, hitting at Great American Ballpark is much better than pitching in Great American Ballpark. And I, I think we might see that out of Yasiel Puig. I mean, that's ever since Puig's name has come up, I've just thought about Yasiel Puig at Great American Ballpark and some of the pop-ups he hits. That we see pop-ups turn into home runs a lot. I want to ask you just about the state of the team in general. Joey Votto led the National League in on-base percentage again, but a lot of his power seemingly evaporated. What happened to him last year? You know, I've talked to Joey about this a lot, and uh, Joey will never say exactly what it is. Uh, there were different parts of the season where he had different thoughts about it. But yeah, I mean, he, he slugged 419, and he is a, a, a career 500-type slugger. So it was a precipitous drop. The question is, is it age? And did he just suddenly age? Now, even if, he, even if that's the case and you lose the power there, you still have a pretty good player. I mean, he still put up a three-and-a-half win player last year, which is not Joey Votto's standards, considering he's coming off a seven-and-a-half win year. But, I mean, that's still a pretty good player, three-and-a-half wins. Now, if, if this is who he's going to be, that's disappointing, but he's still productive. Joey seems to think that he has diagnosed it, and he is saying maybe it is some age and there are some different things. If there's anybody I'm betting on, you know, people say this all the time, but if there's anybody I'm betting on being right and being able to correct it, it's probably Joey Votto. It's really interesting because I remember, I think in September, he had said something last year where someone asked him, it might have been you, about the power. And he 
he had basically said that he was preemptively making adjustments because of his age, but realized he didn't have to do that yet and was just trying to go back to what he was doing. Yeah, I think there was some of that. He is really put in the time and effort and the thought into it. And uh, that's what Joey Votto does. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to hit 35 homers again next year. Uh, but I, I, I just can't see him hitting just 12 home runs again next year if he's healthy. Do you think Joey Votto has had his last five-win season? No. I agree with that. I think he'll have a couple more here, and he might even have one into his 40s. He's that kind of guy. He is something, and, and he, is, he is someone who, it's funny, you know, you, you notice a lot of things when you're on the road, and he comes in every day with his own food, usually. Um, he will find like the whole foods in town and he is very meticulous about his body and, and what he's doing and how he's training his body, including the fuel every single day and everything that goes in it. And, um, he is, he is someone who is solely focused on being the best baseball player he can be. And it's, it's, it's really it's interesting to watch and and to see up close every day. And it's, it's really one of the only ways I think you can really appreciate um, this player. And even some who are there every day don't appreciate quite um, as I think they should. I don't, I don't think they value what he does quite as much as, as maybe he should. He is a, he's a phenomenal, phenomenal player. And, uh, but it'll, he's going into his age 35 season, but he, he, I, I think he still has at least one, if not more, five one seasons left in him i think in jaws he's already top 15 first baseman of all time by the time he retires he'll likely be in the top 10 he uh. is almost certainly headed for the hall of fame but i'm wondering if reds fans have really appreciated joey Votto for what he is i don't think so but i think that's coming around um i think last year really or not last year i'm sorry 2017 the 2017 he season he had it kind of broke through that where where a lot of that old narrative was kind of destroyed. I mean, and it's funny, he was coming off a 2016 season when he, uh, I just have the baseball reference page up on my uh, on my screen right now, which he had the highest OPS plus in, in, in the National League. Um, <laughs> but still, it was that um, topping 30 home runs and getting the 90... 100 RBI. His his 2017 season was was phenomenal, and at age 33 at the time. So, I think the I think more people than in the past have kind of just been succumbed to just saying, "Oh yeah, this guy is really great," and it's um, we should appreciate him while he's here. The last couple of seasons, there have been some bright spots for the Reds. They have developed Scooter Jeanette and uh, Eugenio Suarez into very, very good players. Uh, they weren't, you know, they weren't always good, but then they sort of became great. How did that happen? Was there a philosophy change by them through coaching or both? What led to their development here? Well, I mean, I, I think those are two vastly different things. Scooter Jeanette was a guy who was into his arbitration process and the brewers decided that they didn't, he just didn't fit and they weren't going to pay for that player. And the reds um, picked him up off waivers. And really the biggest thing that happened was that Jose Peraza struggled at second base. He was Scooter Jeanette wasn't a everyday player until July of 2017. 
which is really crazy when you consider that he he finished that season without being an everyday player till I believe it was after the All Star break when he was when it was decided that he was the everyday second baseman and still finished with 27 home runs and 97 RBI. I mean, it was a really good season that year. And then he followed it up with a very similar season this next year. So it it was, uh, it was kind of interesting. The biggest thing the Reds did, and and I wrote about this last year is they said, you can play every day and you can play against left-handed pitching. The Brewers never really allowed him to hit against left-handed pitching and the knock was he couldn't hit left-handed pitching. And, and what Scooter says is, well, you didn't know if I could hit left-handed pitching because you never let me. And when you go back into the numbers, if you go to his splits for his last his couple of years in, in Milwaukee, they never let him hit against left-handers. And then he hit well against left-handers. So that was one. Eugenio Suarez was a young guy um, when the Tigers traded him to the Reds. Um, he, he is a, uh, there were people, uh, one of my favorite stories, and I wrote about this a couple years ago, one of my favorite stories with A. Eugenio Suarez was when they made the trade, Jim Leland and Walt Jockerty are, are, are friendly or very good friends. Apparently, and, and both Walt and Jim have told me this, that after that trade was agreed upon, they're in the hallway at the, um, winter meetings in San Diego and Leland is cursing uh, well, Jockety up and down because he really was upset that Dave Dombrowski traded a Eugenio Suarez uh, because he really was a big believer in Suarez, who at the time was a shortstop. And um, then the Reds moved him with Zach Cozart at shortstop. They moved Suarez to third after the Todd Frazier trade and again gave him a chance to play. He's only 27 now. Of course, I was just saying Scooter Jeanette's 28 and it's older. But, um, you know, he, he was a younger player in 2015. And given, or he came up in 2015 uh, when Sw- Cozart was hurt, played him at third in 2016, kind of struggled at the new position in 2016 until about the All-Star break, and then really kind of turned it around. And since then, it's almost like once he got comfortable playing third base, he was com- more comfortable at the plate. And you've seen him, I-, I always liked early his gap-to-gap power, and it's gotten a little bit more, and it plays really well at Great American Ballpark. And he, he is just a, he's a phenomenal player. And then um, before last season, he signed a long-term deal that, that's going to look, at least at this point, looks very, very favorable to the Reds. After seeing what Shohei Otani did last year in Los Angeles, is there any chance they let Michael Lorenzen be a two-way player? I think they will be a little more open. I mean, he actually did play in the outfield for a game last year. Not He didn't start there, but he played in the outfield. Um, there's no question that he can he can play the outfield, honestly. Um, I think, I don't know that he's quite the, I don't think he's not the hitter that Shohei Otani is. He is a very good hitter for a pitcher and is a quality hitter. But when he was coming out as a draft, everybody thought he could play defensively center field, that he had some holes in his swing. And that's something that is a little easier to hide when you're a pitcher, especially a reliever and a pinch hitter and coming up when he did, uh, as opposed to um, a full-on Otani. 
So I think there's, I think there is some brainstorming on how to use him to maximize his specific skills. Because again, he's also extremely fast. Heck, now he might be the, it's he or Peraza are probably the fastest guys on the team now. They were battling for second before. Um, that is no longer an issue. I want to shift focus off of the Reds and onto your Hall of Fame ballot. When you came on a few years ago, it was your first year voting. You mentioned, oh, wow. you mentioned at the time that uh, your strategy with voting would just be to look at the ballot and rank every player on it and go from there. Is that still what you're doing? It is. Um, I, and I really struggled with it that first year. Um, I actually have my notebook that I keep, and I, I keep the same notebook every year. Um, I'm one of those people who kind of writes out their thoughts a lot, and I like to do it longhand. Um, so I have a so I have a notebook that I keep. That's my Hall of Fame voting, and uh, since it's January, it's right here on my desk. And I kind of did the same thing, where I just looked at each case, wrote down a whole bunch, and and finally had to decide. And you write down. I think I have fifty. 16 I have 16 here and I just draw a line at 10 and I click the 10 before and and um, if we were given the what Derek Gould the great Derek Gould once uh, deemed the binary ballot I think it would be much more difficult yep straight up yes or no is what Derek proposes the hall is very against that they are worried about too many people getting in yet they put the together the veterans committee that puts in Harold Baines right and so We'll see. I mean, the Veterans Committee went from never getting anybody in to then allowing a very, very good player in Harold Baines. And I, I, I kind of struggle with this because Harold Baines is probably below my line if I were to draw one. But Harold Baines was a really good player. Yeah, he was. Uh, and, and, and to turn him into a punchline, I think, is unfair. And it's um, not his fault. He didn't do no. anything wrong here. He just beat a bad process. That's all. Right. And there well, are plenty and, of other people that have Rice done that, too. the same thing. You know, you know, Jim Rice used to be the shorthand for pretty good player who probably shouldn't be in, who's maybe the baseline. Um, and now it's Harold Baines. And and as I kind of see myself as a big haul guy, I struggle with using anybody's great career as a punchline. I mean. And so, like, I looked, you know, you go through these ballots, and everybody was like, oh, why is he on the ballot? And I still go through those guys. And, like, Placido Polanco, that's a guy who had a great career. I don't think he was a Hall of Fame player, but he was on the ballot this year. This is a guy who had a fantastic career, and I was kind of glad that I went through and looked at it and and, and, and maybe gave new appreciation to, to him and his career. You know, the, the, I always tell people, I'll say, well, that guy's terrible. I'm like, well, you know what? The worst player in the major leagues is better at his job than you will ever be at your job. Oh, yeah, significantly. So, and it's not even close. Um, so, again, I struggle using Harold Baines as a punchline. However, he is probably below at least 16 players that I have, if if not more, um, if I were to rank. And, and again, I... I wonder if I should even be doing the ranking, and every year I struggle with that, uh, whether I should be voting as well as how I vote when I have decided um, to vote. The players you did vote for this year are Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mariano Rivera, Kurt Schilling, Mike Mussina, Roy Halladay, 
Edgar Martinez, Larry Walker, Scott Rowland, and Manny Ramirez. Did Manny give you any pause with his positive tests? Um, you know, I, I kind of a lot of these I've already thought through, and my Manny Ramirez was thought through a year ago um, when I'm looking at it, and it's kind of silly. And I wrote about this on the Athletic. Um, we were, said like, well, just take one case and, and throw it out there. And Manny is probably the one that I question myself over the most. Um, but it's odd that being in Cincinnati really helps dictate uh, how I view Manny Ramirez because, uh, you know, when I interviewed for a job at the Cincinnati Post in 2004, um, <laughs> the managing editor asked me, he says, what do you think? Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? And I said, yes. When you have 4,256 hits, you should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and Pete has done some terrible, terrible things, uh, both to the game and outside the game. Um, but I still kind of believe that he should be in the hall of fame. Um, Kurt Schilling has done some terrible, said some terrible things. He's done some other bad things. I still believe he should be in the hall of fame. But with the Pete thing is it's, it's a little, it's the different is that if he were declared eligible today, would I vote for him? Yes, despite what he did, because he served his sentence. To me, Manny Ramirez served a sentence. I you agree. Know, he 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 served both those sentences and was came back. And even if he didn't come back to the majors the last time, he was in the minors. He was eligible to play because he served his sentence. And I will vote for Alex Rodriguez too. And it's not going to take me long to. I'm not going to do a lot of soul searching on that one because uh, for the same reasons. Yeah, and if you're ranking the best players, I think by the time A-Rod comes on, Bonds and Clemens will be off. So if you're ranking the best players, A-Rod will be the first name you check. Yes. I mean, he's... he's For several years, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And that's the interesting thing. As the ballot is thinning out now, and we're starting to see more and more players, we're seeing Walker move up a lot, we're seeing Vizquel get a surge, even Fred McGriff on his last year is getting a big surge. We are seeing players that were affected by the 10-slot limit. The interesting things with Bonds and Clemens is they are not. If you were a Bonds and Clemens supporter, they're the first two names you check. They're not affected by the 10-slot limit at all. They're one and two on this list I'm looking at. Absolutely. How did you rank them? Okay, this is this is kind of interesting. Um, Bonds, Clemens, Rivera. Um, I just, you know, there are people, it's funny, I saw someone locally here who said, I'll never vote for a DH, so I'm only voting for Mariana Rivera. Right. <laughs> Right. I won't vote for a part-time player, but I'll vote for a reliever. Um, yeah, anyway. But Rivera was so good at what he did. I don't think that's too um, controversial. What is does get controversial, I guess, for me, and, and one of the things I look around is I value all-around players. I value people who do everything well, and I think that is a big part of the game. That's why at number four I have Larry Walker. I had – see, I guessed – the order I thought you would have ranked them when I put Schilling for. He's five. Okay, not bad. Uh, I think Kurt Schilling, the the thing I say about Kurt Schilling, he's the postseason player, pitcher that the Jack Morris devotees think Jack Morris was. And he was better in the regular season too. And he was better in the regular season. Kurt Schilling, it's, he may want me dead and my friends killed. And he might be a terrible person, but he was a hell of a baseball player. And I, I would, if, if I had one game to pitch, I wouldn't be upset if I had Kurt Schilling on the mound. 
and that's over a lot of people too. Uh, six Roy Halladay, um, seven Mike Mussina, eight Manny Ramirez, nine Edgar Martinez, ten Scott Rowland. And that would be my ballot if I had a real ballot, and I would also vote for many more. I'm curious who your other six are that you thought would, were deserving, but you didn't have space. You know, and these, I don't think I've... The order's probably not as accurate. I have Todd Helton at 11, Andrew Jones at 12, uh, McGriff at 13, Sheffield at 14, Kent at 15, Billy Wagner at 16. Yeah, I I think Sheffield as a whole is a guy that's getting completely hosed in this whole process. He has the Belco connection. It was only for a summer. He there's look, a lot of athletes have lied about taking steroids. He seems to be the guy telling the truth. He's denounced Barry Bonds. He's ripped everybody associated with Belco. It's entirely possible he actually didn't know what he was taking. He only used for a summer. Unquestionably He's a terrible fielder. Oh, awful. Like historically bad. I think ranks lasted UZR of all time, but one of the best hitters of his generation, no doubt. Yes. Yes. And I put him with some of the other great hitters of his generation. Just to put a bow tie on the Hall of Fame conversation in general, uh, does Baines getting in influence how you feel about the Hall at all? Does it does it change your mind in terms of, oh, maybe it should be bigger than I think it is? No. Um, I just think it's, you know, there have been bad selections before, and there will be more bad selections both by the writers and by whatever other committee they have. No, I'm fine with it. You know, I wouldn't elect the guy, but hey, good for him. What's telling to me about Baines, and I think this is true, especially true when you get to looking at how players view Hall of Famers and how managers and people within the game, they really value longevity. Uh-huh. And I think that writers do too, to a certain degree. We saw this, Nomar Garciaparra got bounced off the ballot his second year on it. I think he peaked. I think he might have got 6% his first year, and then he fell off his second year. Omar Vizquel is going to get like 40% this year, like close to 50%. Nomar Garciaparra was a much better player, but he wasn't he wasn't good for long. He didn't play for 20 years. Vizquel did, and I think that longevity, just being around for a long time, which is something Baines did too, that is valuable to a lot of people within the game. They have the perspective that to them it's very hard to stick. If you stick for that long, you're doing something really right. And you can say that about Omar Vizquel. And and he has he played for a long time and was a useful player for a long time. Hell, I'll even throw he's a great player. He's not on my 16, but he's a great player. Um, he also benefited from his team. He played for a team that didn't need him to hit. And they could carry, you know, I, I don't know that he was the best defensive shortstop when he played. You know, I... I do you think he was any better defensively than Ray Ordonez? No, but I think he was very good defensively for 20 years, and Ordonez mm-hmm. wasn't, and I think that's the difference. Correct, and also Ray Ordonez played in the National League, where it was a little harder to carry a bat like that. Very true. And I, I just, I think there are some differences, and I, I always, I don't like to ever make my arguments about the limitations of one player. I like to try to look at the greatness of a player and stack them up on their greatness, not on their weaknesses. And that may sound silly and it may sound like I'm just it, it, you parsing my words differently, but, and heck you said Gary Sheffield and I said, yeah, but he was a terrible fielder. Um, so yeah, I try to look at each player and I want to rank greatness, not, not uh, the limitations. And I think Omar Vizquel was a great player. 
Um, but he's, I think there are at least 10 players who are better players than he was. And that's not a knock on Omar Vizquel or Gary Sheffield or Fred McGriff or anybody. You've been listening to C. Trent Rosecrans. Trent covers the Reds for The Athletic. You can give him a follow on Twitter at C. Trent. Trent, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Anytime. Thanks for having me again. 